Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 60. A2 Brute. In 48 BC, Gaius Julius Caesar was the most powerful man in the Roman world. Pompey was defeated and Caesar was in Egypt. While there, he intervened in a dispute about the monarchy. He ensured that the reigning pharaohs, Ptolemy XIV and Cleopatra VII, were confirmed as the rulers of Egypt. Caesar had ulterior motives. He was absolutely captivated by the young queen, and soon they were lovers. Before Caesar left Egypt, Cleopatra would have his son, who was called Caesarion. Ptolemy XIV soon died, and Cleopatra became the sole ruler of Egypt. While in Egypt, Caesar was appointed dictator for another year. Again, this was completely against the rules of the Republic, but the rules of the Republic had gone out of the window years before. In 47, he travelled over to Pontus and defeated the son of Mithridates. Caesar was a brilliant general, even if his politics left plenty to be desired. His victory in Asia was incredibly quick. Caesar himself summed it up brilliantly. I came, I saw, I conquered. In Rome, though, things weren't going quite so well. Caesar had left his henchmen in charge while he'd been away, and he'd been away a long time. Mark Antony was great to have around as a second-in-command, but he wasn't the perfect choice to lead when he was put in charge. Instead of concentrating on keeping order, a tricky enough task for anyone, he fooled around with a notorious woman and was denounced by our old friend Cicero. Mark Antony was not a great orator, and his diplomatic skills left something to be desired. Some of the troops in Rome mutinied, and Caesar had to return to put down the rebellion. The rebellion itself was a little half-hearted, and Caesar didn't have much trouble dealing with it. A much more serious one broke out in North Africa, led by another great supporter of the Republic, Cato the Younger. As usual, Caesar had the smaller army, but as usual his leadership won the day. Poor old Cato knew the game was up. The great upholder of the Republic didn't wait for Caesar to get to him and kill him with clemency. He took a sword, read some Plato, and then killed himself. The slow death of the Republic continued. Caesar, though, carried on regardless. In 46 BC, back in Rome, he was appointed dictator for a further ten years. A great man he certainly was, but he thought that everyone agreed that this was the case. He thought he was universally popular because of all the things he had done for the people. He cancelled all the debts. He overhauled the calendar, bringing in the solar-based Julian calendar that was used for over 1,500 years. He settled 80,000 former soldiers in colonies throughout the growing territory. Citizenship was expanded. He increased the membership of the Senate to 900. He celebrated the most magnificent of triumphs. In fact, four triumphs in one. This grandiose triumph just shows how much Caesar's victories had convinced him he was untouchable and worshipped. A statue of Cleopatra was paraded alongside Caesar's supposed ancestral goddess Venus. This must have upset the more conservative elements, since Caesar's wife Calpurnia was still very much alive. Not many men would have dared to parade a statue of a girlfriend in the streets of Rome. Giraffes, elephants and other exotic animals from far and wide were brought in for the masses to see for the first time. Some of the soldiers complained, and a few of them were put to death, their heads nailed to a wall in Caesar's new forum. Most of the rest received a hefty bonus, paid for with loot stolen from the newly conquered territories. 
Caesar was keen on leaving a lasting legacy. Apart from his new forum, a temple to Mars was planned, as was a huge temple to Venus. Outside the Temple of Venus was erected a statue of Caesar on a horse. Great games were held at the dedication of the temple. Taking part in the games was a young man who Caesar was taking under his wing. Gaius Octavius Thurinus was the great man's great-nephew, son of Caesar's niece. He was a sickly youth, but something about him appeared, appealed to his great-uncle. The young man, who seemed unlikely to survive into middle age, eventually outdid anything that Caesar managed. In December 46 BC, another rebellion broke out, this time in Spain. Caesar travelled to take on his opponents, who were led by Gnaeus Pompey, son of the late Pompey the Great. Using his innate ability to deliver a sterling speech, destroyer number nine rallied his troops and proceeded to achieve a stunning victory. Gnaeus Pompey was killed. His younger brother Sextus Pompey was considered too unimportant by the godlike Caesar and was not hunted down. Back in Rome, the defenders of the Republic were despairing. It was clear to them the Republic had been badly damaged, but they still dreamed of reviving its purest form. The great senator and writer Cicero was one of their leaders. Poor Cicero longed for the return of the Republican values and statutes. He felt a real sense of loss at the dwindling freedoms, even though he had only really known the Republic once the decline had set in. As we will soon see, Cicero's urging of his fellows to try to return the Republic to its purer roots would have a great bearing on what was going to happen next. Caesar reformed many things, and one of his less popular reforms was the limiting of personal luxury. It was said that inspectors were sent out to examine the smallest things, extravagance at dinner, pearls in clothes, any signs of excess. Cicero remarked that the new vegetarian diet he was made to suffer was giving him stomachache. It's certain, though, that the destruction of the Republic was causing him greater pain. Cicero didn't try and rebel against Caesar yet, though. In fact, in December 45 BC, he invited the dictator to dinner, having to feed the 2,000 soldiers who came with him. In years gone by, Cicero and Caesar had been friends, and they used to talk about politics and what was right. This Caesar was a different man. There was no talk of politics, only of literature and other entertainments. When Caesar left Cicero's house, the 2,000 soldiers rode on either side, guarding him. He was a king in all but name. And the trappings of monarchy just became more pronounced. The Senate continued to vote on decisions, but they were decisions that Caesar had already made. Cicero complained he had seen decrees issued in his name that he had not even read. Sacrifices were made in Caesar's honour on his birthday. This custom had been common in Greece, but only for Greek kings. Vows were made to keep Caesar sacrosanct, like the tribunes were supposed to be. In early 44 BC, he was given his own personal religious cult. His right-hand man, the thuggish Mark Antony, was made the cult's high priest. But Gaius Julius Caesar was not content on being the undisputed leader of the Roman world. He was not even content with the Roman world. It seems that all of the conquered lands were not big enough for him. He wanted to make his growing empire larger, and he wanted to finish some unfinished business. Marcus Crassus, destroyer number six, had died in the east fighting against the might of the Parthian Empire. Caesar and his commanders planned a three-year military campaign designed to crush the Parthians 
and established Rome as the only club in town. If the Parthians were brought to their knees, then there would be nobody left out there to threaten the supremacy of the growing majesty of Rome. There was even talk of going back on a conquering mission through the land of Dacia, north of the Danube. Dacia wouldn't be captured by Caesar, though. In fact, it would be the last permanent provincial addition to the Roman Empire, 160 years later, when it was invaded and absorbed into the empire by the great emperor Trajan. In February 44 BC, a month or two before he was due to go to the east, Julius Caesar accepted another appointment as dictator. This time, though, the bounds of legality were stretched beyond breaking point. Caesar was appointed dictator for life. There was no legal basis or justification for this whatsoever. Whatever he may have dreamt up to excuse this clear breach of every rule in the book, it wouldn't have been enough. The Republic had become a joke. One man had all the power and was in a position to retain that power until he died. How could any form of republicanism be resurrected when that happened? And Caesar's popularity was not what it had once been. His curbing of excesses and his total domination of the Senate caused resentment and rebellious thoughts were expressed in high circles. Caesar didn't seem to see it. He became so confident in his position that he dismissed his bodyguards in Rome. He refused even to stand when senators came to visit him, maybe seeing them as common little men in the presence of their great leader. The body of senators opposed to Caesar grew. Cicero began to hint in letters and out loud that Caesar was becoming a tyrant. Others had the same thought, and still more listened and became persuaded. Plans for rebellion were put in place, led by two senators, Gaius Cassius Longinus and Marcus Junius Brutus. Brutus, like Caesar, was said to be descended from one of the original families of Rome. He was also supposed to be a descendant of the other Brutus, one of the consuls in the very first year of the Republic. Cassius, in particular, had shown he was opposed to tyranny from a very early age. Both decided something should be done, and a plan was put in place. Some 60 men were in on the plan. This just goes to show the level of feeling against the dictator. One of those not informed, though, was Cicero. This wasn't because the other senators feared he wasn't with them, it was simply that the great writer and orator had a reputation for not being able to keep his mouth shut. Caesar seemed totally oblivious to the real danger facing him. As February turned to March, he had a meeting with his favourite soothsayer, the fortune teller. The soothsayer, who was called Spirina, told him to beware the Ides of March. The Ides were supposed to represent the approximate middle of the month, and for March are generally reckoned to be on the 15th. Caesar's wife Calpurnia had a dream in which Caesar was murdered. Caesar, it seems, took little or no notice of any of these omens. The 15th of March dawned. Julius Caesar made his way to the Senate as normal. With him, as usual, was his fellow consul, the faithful Mark Antony. According to the historian Plutarch, on his journey to that great bastion of the Republic, he bumped into Spurina. He laughed and joked with the soothsayer. The Ides of March have come, he laughed, gesticulating that he was quite clearly still alive. Yes, replied Spurina, but they have not yet gone. When Caesar and his sidekick arrived at the Senate House, it was clear that not all was well. A large number of senators were there to meet them, maybe all sixty of the conspirators. Mark Antony was detained, and then five or six of the senators approached Caesar. They were armed with knives. 
Nobody can be entirely sure exactly what went down on the steps of the Senate, but both Plutarch and another historian, Suetonius, give an account. Briefly, it seems it went something like this. The Senator Lucius Tilius Kimber presented Caesar with a petition demanding the recall of Kimber's brother from exile. Caesar tried to brush him away, but Kimber persisted. It became clear that the protest and demands were not going to continue to be made peacefully when Kimber grabbed at the dictator's shoulder and pulled down his tunic. Caesar, annoyed and surprised, cried out, Why, this is violence! At that moment, another senator, Servilius Casca, pulled out his dagger and thrust at Caesar's neck. The great man was experienced in the arts of warfare and spotted the blow coming. He caught hold of Casca's arm and prevented the knife from doing any damage. Caesar tried to say something, but his words were of no use. The rest of the small group all pulled out their knives and began to stab at Caesar. He fell, blinded by blood, as he tried to escape, and the group of eminent senators finished him off. It was later reported that his body had 23 stab wounds. Ironically, he fell under a statue of his great rival Pompey, which he, Caesar, had restored to its previous position of honour. The great English playwright, William Shakespeare, has given us a dramatic version of Caesar's last moments. He tells us the dictator noticed Brutus among the assassins. Caesar had previously pardoned Brutus for siding with Pompey in the earlier civil war and brought him into his inner circle. Caesar considered him a friend. Shakespeare has Brutus being the last person to stab Caesar and thus deliver the fatal blow. Caesar looks up at his old colleague and says simply, A tu, Brute, and you, Brutus. Both Suetonius and Plutarch tell us that Caesar didn't actually say anything before he died. Suetonius tells us that others reported Caesar saying, You too, my son. Who knows what the real facts were, but it doesn't really matter. Whatever he might or might not have uttered as the life drained from him, the fact was that Gaius Julius Caesar was dead. The dictator for life had held that honour for only a few months. So Gaius Julius Caesar was gone but the Republic had been dealt a huge, whopping, mortal blow. It would never recover. Julius Caesar, despite not having an inkling that people were plotting against him, knew what he had done in obtaining so much personal power. He had said that when he died there would be civil war. He was 100% bang on in this prediction. The events that followed Caesar's death and the subsequent 14 years or so marked the last years of the Republic, even if most of the rules and legal safety features had already gone. History likes firm dates, and the popular date for the end of the Republic and the start of imperial rule is 31 BC. As with most start dates in the ancient world, this is somewhat arbitrary. The destruction of the Republic had begun at least a 100 years before, and the Roman emperors kept up the fiction of the Republic at least until the 3rd century AD. In the next chapter will tell the story of the years following Caesar's murder, and particularly of the sickly young man who emerged as the unchallenged leader of the Roman world, and who we will now view as Rome's first emperor. For now, though, we'll look at the events that immediately followed the death of Julius Caesar, when nobody was sure what would be formed from the chaos he had left behind. As with so many popular coups against all-powerful leaders, the first few hours and days were critical. As so often happens with assassinations, though, the assassins had had no plan. Later, Cicero remarked the golden chance was lost. 
Brutus made a speech on the Capitol Hill, but he didn't really have much in the way of substance and no call to action. Usually, when one of the consuls died, the other took over until a colleague could be elected to fill the dead man's role. In this case, though, the other consul was Mark Antony, and he had fled. Given that he was Caesar's man, he would not have been welcomed by the conspirators anyway. It was Antony, though, who made the first decisive move. Showing a political skill far greater than anyone had given him credit for, he announced he had a copy of Caesar's last plans. Mark Antony announced that Caesar's murderers were not to be punished and that there should be reconciliation. He said, though, that all of Caesar's plans should be put into action and all of his past actions should be ratified by the Senate, making everything that he had previously done legal. The senators hesitated. This was Cicero's golden chance. Could they take it? Could they refuse Antony's reconciliation and reject the power that Caesar had held over them from the grave? Well, maybe they could have done, but of course they didn't. Many of them owed their positions to the late dictator, and anyway, there were some heavily armed soldiers with Antony there to help them make up their minds. They voted to approve the plans. They even voted to give Caesar a public funeral. Nobody knows whether Caesar's last plans were really Caesar's last plans, or whether Antony or somebody else made them up. Cicero commented there were things in the plans that even Caesar would never have allowed, implying Mark Antony had forged, or at least doctored them. He wondered what would have happened if Antony had been killed too, as he had wanted. Looking back with hindsight, it seems obvious that Caesar's right-hand man and contrived fellow consul should also be done away with. On the 20th of March, Mark Antony opened Caesar's will. The late dictator had left a sum of money to every citizen in Rome, and he left his gardens to the public. Most importantly, in the long run, he posthumously adopted his great-nephew. Gaius Thurinus Octavius became Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, and was named as Caesar's heir. At the funeral, Antony gave a rousing speech about Caesar's greatness. He held up a piece of his master's blood-stained toga, sung a lament and wept. Actors, placed strategically in the crowd, began laments of their own and the rest of the crowd joined in. This was not what happened in a properly functioning republic. This was a funeral of a king, in all but name. Mark Antony didn't have everything his own way. He was consul, so had legitimate power, but the legitimacy of all power in Rome was now suspect. A man called Amatius who had been an opponent of Caesar, reappeared and caused some trouble. He didn't last long, but it's a demonstration of the way things were going, that his popularity appears to have been based on the fact he was rumoured to be the grandson of Gaius Marius. He was put to death before he could cause any real trouble. Brutus and Cassius both left Rome, despite the amnesty for the killers of Caesar. They were out of the way for the moment, so they were no direct threat to Mark Antony. The greatest threat to his power would come from the sickly young man we mentioned earlier. Far more skilful politically and cunning beyond his years, the 18-year-old Octavian would make his own bid for power. He was Caesar's heir and he was fiercely ambitious. These qualities would make him a formidable opponent and a very dangerous friend. In the next chapter, we will find out just how dangerous a friend Octavian could become. If you're enjoying this podcast, then head on over to www.historypodcasters.com. There you will find the History Collage podcast, where a group of history podcasters, like me, present short sections on a theme. 
The current episode's theme is It Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time. It's great fun, so do pop over and do have a listen. If you do, great, and if not, I'll speak to you next time.